In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague and official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. Yes, I am the agitator against the status quo, the angry old man. I used to be an angry young man. Now I'm an angry old man. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) So for today's episode, we're continuing our discussion on sustainability, but we're going to throw in a whole bunch of stuff that revolves around that. And if we get a chance, we're going to talk about ethics and engineering in that world of sustainability with our special guest, Roland Clift, who's a chemical engineer who helped develop the new discipline of industrial ecology Roland, welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. I'm another grumpy old man, by the way. (laughs) You're in good company. I get what confidence I have in the future from the younger people I work with. (laughs) And I'm going to become the most perfect grumpy old man because I get to have two grumpy old men today to work with. so. (laughs) So, Roland, you have a really interesting career that, of course, sort of has a base in the UK, but your, your voice is heard internationally both in the world of academia, but also in the world of engineering. So maybe you could tell our audience, just share with them your story. How did you get to, to be who you are? Oh, okay. Well, I started out as a fairly conventional chemical engineer. Okay. First degree at Cambridge, PhD at McGill. So I'm actually joint British and Canadian citizen. And I got interested originally in fluid particle systems. I started working on aspects of the clean coal technology that was being developed in the 1970s. And then leading on from that, I was asked to head up a national research initiative in the UK on clean technology. That involved, it was an interesting proposition. It involved, basically, I was given a sheet of paper with clean technology written at the top of it and asked to fill it in. Um, I got to define what clean technology is. And the more I got into that, I managed to get the the way the research funding was divided up in the UK in those days. It was very much divided up on disciplinary lines. And with a bit of effort, I managed to get several of the research councils involved. So that was engineering, biological sciences and social sciences, all involved in this initiative. Because the further I got into it, the more I realized that the environmental problems that we've imposed on the planet are not a result of lack of technology. They're a result of lack of intelligence in using technology which we already have. Here, here. Yeah, well said, well said. Yes. Yeah. I, I gave up the job I had as head of the chemical engineering department at a, the University of Surrey in the UK. And instead at Surrey, I set up a centre which was intended to bring together engineers and social scientists. All right. I like that. This was in the early 90s, around the time of the first Rio conference, when things like that were a bit loony. But <laughs> time proved that I was right, actually. This was needed. 
That sounds like a good Venn diagram. <laughs> well, exactly. What is now called the Centre for Environment and Sustainability was started out as observing that, by and large, there's a field called um, socio-technical studies, and it really doesn't work because the socio-people don't understand the technology, and the technological people don't understand the social sciences. So I was consciously trying to put a bridge in there. So that's where I came from. From that, I got into developing ideas on sustainability. I got into things which are a bit foreign to a lot of engineers, including the agenda which is called post-normal science. Wow, I like that. It's the idea. It came from Jerry Rovets and Silvio Funtovich. And the idea is that when you have something which is really important, but where the data and background information is extremely uncertain, then you need to have what the post-normal scientists call an extended peer community. So things like planning and technical decisions need to be exposed to public debate to make sure that they really have incorporated the wishes of the people who are going to be affected by whatever you're doing. So as you said that, as you were saying that, what came into my head is climate change. This is exactly what's going on, right? Unsettled science, angry people, you know, them versus us, I'm right, you're wrong. And where's the public good coming out of this? Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the the really the, the big headline example where post-normal science is needed. Now you can find other things like urban air quality, which has come onto the agenda in more recent times, but that's exactly the kind of problem where the post-normal science is actually rather important. So let's bring in the dismal science of economics. Did I get involved here with externalities and real cost of... Over the years, I've found that the hardest discipline to involve is economics. (laughs) Because it's dismal. Uh, Well, because particularly neoclassical economics. I mean, I realized somewhere along the line that neoclassical economics is like Euclidean geometry. (laughs) There are a few basic axioms (laughs) and the whole thing is then built as a marvelous logical structure on the basis of four or five axioms, some of which are manifestly nonsense. (laughs) And that makes it very difficult to debate with neoclassical economists because you can't sort of criticize a bit over here without criticising the axioms. It's the left hand and on the right hand, yeah. So yeah, we should probably <laughs> yeah, leave the... That, the yeah, that's getting better. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's uh, ecological economics developing, which is really rather more grounded, actually. <laughs> but over the years, I would say the economists have been the ones I've had most problem with. And I am really not a fan of the approach of financial valuation, internalising the externalities. I think it's a false concept, actually. One of the reasons is that it tries to reduce everything to a single dimension called value. Yeah. And the economic concept of value is very different from the philosophical concept of value. Mm. So I've tended to try. Most environmental economics and philosophy is based on utilitarianism. Right. You know, the idea that it's for the maximum good of the maximum number of people. Yeah. That's behind things like cost-benefit analysis. I think that's actually gone in the wrong direction. I'm much more interested in trying to base environmental thinking on Kantian ethics. Right. The idea of a categorical imperative. You know, something which, if everybody did it, we'd all be okay, putting it crudely. (laughs) 
And that, I think, is the way you're ahead on uh, climate change rather than internalizing the externalities. Yeah. I mean, you see this if you look at the Stern report, for example, if you remember that a few years ago. That rings a bell, actually. I can't remember it. Though. But it was probably about 10 years ago now. It was a report done by a very eminent economist on climate change. It had a lot of resonance in Europe because he was an economist. Right. He actually took a lot of scenarios, some of which I'd developed, although you wouldn't know that from the Stone Report. <laughs> I don't mind that, you know, but what he did was cost what was necessary to follow those scenarios to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And he concluded that the cost of following a low carbon path was small compared to the cost of the damage caused by climate change. Right. Mm, that's okay. interesting. Now that got a lot of attention at the time. It was one of the things that persuaded a lot of European governments to take climate change more seriously. But it also told you an enormous amount about the economic community because the economists said, oh, well, his conclusions are wrong because he used the wrong discount rate. <laughs> and if you used a more realistic discount rate, you concluded that it was okay to defer action. Yeah, this is short-term versus long-term thinking. Yeah, that's yeah, it's, it really yeah, is. You know, this is just, it tells you more about economists than anything. To be fair, <laughs> one of the people who was yeah. most critical, an economist by the name of Nordhaus at Yale, he has since recanted and said, look, we got it wrong. I'm sure that wasn't on CNN. <laughs> having admitted that. Yeah. You know, the yeah. same philosophy yeah. occurs... Imperative. It's it, it it says you don't pay great attention to the discount rate. You say, well, what have we actually got to do to save the planet? Right. If you look at it from the social sciences, it's like when you have people that have, you know, let's take mental illnesses for example, and that once they get into the system, now they're on the system, and of course that has to be funded. But if you treat them before yeah. they develop the mental illness and all yes. of that occurs, then the the economic cost to society is way, way lower. I mean, we yep. need to prevent them from getting into the system, keep them off the system. And, and of course, everybody benefits. They benefit, their families benefit, society benefits. And it's the same thing that we're talking about here. And exactly. And if you go back to what I was doing on clean technology when I was heading the UK initiative on that, it was exactly that approach. You know, you don't go for a cleanup. You go for getting it right in the first <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. that's the basis of clean technology. Right. Yeah, this is where if you think in systems, though, right, when you're doing cleanup rather than prevention, there's job creation, there's a system becomes, it wants to defend itself. Let's give you an example. So mm. one of the greatest opposers of legalization of marijuana in America are the prison unions. Yes. Because half the prison population is there for weed, right? So, yeah. you know, the system, yeah. Yeah. the prison union system has to defend itself even if it's against the greater good yeah. or the prevention of, right? That's the same thing we've got going here with climate mm. change. There are systems in place like the coal yes. production system, for example, right, that has an interest in yeah. survival, yeah. right? There is. Yeah. What do you guys think? That the oil sands. I mean, how on earth did we get into that? Moolah, money. Much <laughs> <laughs> to my undying shame, I actually did some consultancy work for Syncrude right. in the 90s. Because it was a well, typical engineering mistake, okay? It was a technologically in interesting problem. Yeah. It was about how you design transport, slurry transport pipelines. And I didn't at the time think about whether this was the right thing to be doing. Yeah, because it was just interesting. You know, yeah. we 
we look for solutions within the boundary conditions and we don't question the boundaries. So that is a great segue yeah, to ethics, right? Ethics yeah. in what we do, engineer and society, you know, where this yeah. is where for me, I studied systems thinking at university. It was just one of the courses I did because mm. I like bubbles on paper. But when you start, yeah. systems are about where you draw the boundary, right? So, you know, for you, you know, that technical problem was so interesting. That was your boundary. But when you didn't step back and come out. So when we look at sustainability, low carbon agendas, you know, everybody would agree that if you draw the system around the planet Earth, we all want our children to live well and have no food and water stress, right? But when you start getting it down to the subsystems, they have to defend themselves. That's when it all goes a bit wrong. So this is where ethics comes in, right? That's right. But let me just say something before we get into it. One of my continuing concerns about engineers is that we don't actually, enough of the time, take that system view. Yes, agreed. So we end up working on more efficient ways to do things that we should not be doing. Correct. Yes. I can agree more. Me working with Syncrude is an example of that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because engineers are fundamentally problem solvers, and that's I'm not going to knock them for narrow thinking, but there is a a resolution of thinking that is immediate to the problem in front of you, right? It's unusual yeah. to t- step back and look at the inter-system connections there, certainly mm. in buildings, for sure. Yeah. Roll, I mean, one of the lectures that I heard, and you were talking, I think it was at Oxford, and it was a, a lecture on sustainability, but you did introduce an ethic discussion and it had to do with engineers working under the Nazi regime. Oh yeah. And I was drawn to that discussion a, because it's an incredibly difficult discussion to bridge and you did a masterful job of doing that, but it opened my eyes as a practitioner to, to try to put myself in the engineer's seat where Mm. I was asked to design an oven or some horrific mechanical system or, or thermal the system. system, you know, which or was the trans- of Auschwitz right. and now. Right. And so how did those engineers, how did, how do you even like ethically and morally face those kinds of problems? So uh, can you talk about that lecture a little bit? Okay. I think we can distance ourselves a bit from what happened in the 1940s, but not too much. I mean, one of the things which the Nuremberg trials established is that it isn't a defense to say I was only following instructions or taking orders. And I think you have to apply that in your everyday engineering life. Yes. Okay? Just because your employer or the client tells you to do something, that doesn't remove the responsibility to ask, should I be doing this? And if not, then you have to, actually, you have to refuse to do it. Now, that for people working under the Nazi regime, that may be particularly difficult, but we're not under that sort of regime. And we right. do have choices, and you yeah. can't duck that one. Agreed. So if you're asked to do something as an engineer, and you know that this is going to have negative impacts on people, maybe even a lot of people, then you've got to say no. And I think we are actually getting better at that. Now, some of the companies I worked with, I particularly worked with companies in what's called fast-moving consumer goods, FMCGs. So that's things like personal care products and food. A lot of the companies in that sector are starting to get the plot. And what I also find is that when I 
talk to people at a sort of lower level, the level on which I work with routinely, they've got it. They know that they are trying to do better, and that's better in an ethical sense. What I find particularly frustrating is that that ethos within the company very often doesn't get declared in public. And when I ask why, I'm usually told it's because the stock market doesn't like it. <laughs> the share value will go down if the stock market thinks that we aren't totally focused on making a profit. That's interesting. I'll give you an example which I'll keep anonymous for this, these purposes. Big FMCG company was subject to a takeover bid recently. We, were, we had been doing some work with them. We were about to put out a press release on the work we've been doing with them. And because of this takeover bid, we were told they could not be named in the press release. I think I know who that is, actually. I'm a big fan of the stock market. Yeah, yeah. Probably, <laughs> That's interesting. That is really interesting. But it's pretty short-sighted, I yeah. think. So what was, are you saying that consumers don't put a value on it or just the stock market? Do you think consumers? No, I'm saying the stock market is seen yeah. as being a barrier. Right. To be honest, I'm not one of these people who thinks that everything rests on the consumer. I think consumer influence is, well, less than some people would like to claim. That's interesting. And personally, when I look back at what I've done over the years, I've been involved with a lot of sort of government advisory bodies. One of the things that strikes me is that the things I've done which have had the most impact have been with companies, not governments. Hmm. So I think it's our role, the role of people like you and me, mm. to actually get into companies and influence their thinking. That's really the pressure point. And the thing that pushed me to that finding was I do a lot of work in Sweden. I'm a visiting professor at one of the Swedish universities, Chalmers. Sweden has, around the world, probably the highest record of consumers buying environmentally labelled products. And Statistics Sweden estimates that this affects something like 2% of consumer purchases. That's interesting. Okay, and that's one of the world leaders. So do you think that is... Oh, boy. Wow. So that's higher than others. Is that... That's high. Yeah. And 2% is really high. And the reason it's that high in Sweden is that the, for example, supermarkets compete on their environmental credentials. So people don't actually look at the labels. There's lots of evidence that if you ask people in the street, are you going to buy an environmentally friendly product? Of course, they're going to say yes. Yeah. But when you follow them around the supermarket, they don't even look at the labels. <laughs> and so in Sweden, it's determined by which supermarket you go to. So the supermarkets compete with environmental credentials to get people to go in there. Mm. So the, the, the marketing mix includes environmental credentialing. Yeah which effectively creates a culture of buying mm. environmental products. So the marketing leads the culture rather than culture leading yes. the... Yes. No, that's interesting. Yes. That yes. is interesting. And, 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 that's, that, and that's enforced not by selective individual consumer purchases, but by where the consumers go to make the purchases. That's interesting because okay. that, that gives me hope that you can generate that interest with marketing. Because that means you mm. can spread that virally almost, right? Yes. That's right. really interesting perspective. I and I, and I think that, that I, I think I'm, well, I'm, I may be being naively optimistic, but I think I can see signs of that knocking over into the construction sector. Yes. 
Okay, some of the companies I work with have decided that they're going to, for example, follow the FSC, the Forest Certification Council, in their sourcing, even though the customers don't require them to. Yes. You know, it's a statement of company ethics and policy. Mm. And that so will let me, have this sort of effect of improving the culture. So let me ask both of you this question. I mean, when you look at the traditional method of building buildings, it follows sort of a segregated design structure. So in other words, the client works with the architect and all of the professionals are, are kept away from each other, lest they collaborate and come up with a really good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Heaven forbid, right? (laughs) But by keeping the professionals isolated and not collaborating, to many ways, you're preventing them sort of to create a basket weave of their own ethics and morals. So can we challenge owners and architects about their own, these systems, and are they unethical systems? Some of them are. Some of them are certainly unethical. Yes, and we can challenge them, and I think we need to. And, and that actually, I think you can see two different approaches. I'm really looking at this now more from the UK perspective than the Canadian perspective. FSC, the Forest Stewardship Council, that was a bottom-up initiative. If you remember how it came about, a lot of companies all the way along the supply chain, all the way through the supply network, were frustrated that there was no agreement reached on forest maintenance in the Rio conference in 1992. So separately, a lot of non uh, nonprofits, supply companies, forest management companies came together and set up the FSC. So it's an interesting example of a bottom-up exercise, and that has actually had quite a lot of traction in that part of the the sector. Then on, against that, you have top-down initiatives like the Modern Slavery Acts, the movement against modern slavery. That's imposed from above. Yeah. And it seems to me that at least so far, it's had much less impact because it's imposed. It hasn't grown up and therefore penetrated the ethos of the whole supply network. Yeah. Yeah, it's not organic, basically, is it? It, In many ways, it's much like subsidies in solar systems, for example. They're short-lived. They last as long as the subsidy or someone's paying attention. But when you have it from a grassroots level, like Passive House, for example, or Mm -hmm. some of these other high-performance building programs that started much more conservatively at the bottom and have just started to blossom. Yes. And I think Uh, that's quite powerful. That's right. I think it's much more powerful than... Well, most other mechanisms I can think of, the downside where you have to be careful is that things like passive housing, some of the examples I've seen, particularly in Sweden, now to have a passive house in Sweden is actually quite an achievement given the climate, but because there isn't a really well-developed structure, you can see mistakes like there's, oh, there's one near Gothenburg where the houses themselves are designed really very imaginatively for energy efficiency, but it's nowhere near public transport. And when you work out how much diesel or gasoline people use in driving around, it more than outweighs the effectiveness of the building. Exactly, yeah. Which is why you need this systems view. Right, yeah. Right. So what you're talking about, Adam, when you're looking at defining the problem as one small bubble, but outside of that bubble is a much bigger 
challenge with much more impact and and that's a great example roland that's uh, yeah well this is the venn diagram of life right so if you can get people buildings the built environment and transportation systems to cross somewhere that's the sweet spot right yeah that's it this is the argument for master planning yeah that three-lobe venn diagram that i and a lot of people use to explain sustainability yeah uh, that diagram is widely used, but a lot of people misunderstand it. So let me try and explain it. What that diagram tries to represent is decision spaces. Right. Okay? So if you take, for example, the environmental or ecological space, that says that is supposed to describe the range of things we can do and remain consistent with the long-term health of the biosphere. Then you've got the technical techno-economic efficiency circled out to the left yeah that's what is perceived to be viable under the current economic system and one of the reasons i make that distinction is and here's an aphorism which plays well in china the laws of thermodynamics are carved into stone the laws of economics are written on paper correct <laughs> and so you know you can change the you can move around the techno-economic lobe yeah. by, for example, changing the fiscal structure. Yes. And in fact, what's happening in Canada now, I don't know if you're aware of this, is really one, an extraordinarily interesting experiment. When you look at the different approaches to carbon yeah. pricing, yeah. the different provinces, the way that's going to play out is going to tell a lot of people how to move in future. Yes, because you basically, this is what I didn't understand when I moved to Canada. It's not really one big country. It's about 10 countries loosely bolted together yeah. under one flag, right. right? So everyone's yeah. sailing their own ship or trying to. That, that's interesting. Yeah. That's why I find BC particularly interesting, yeah. actually. I mean, for rather weird political reasons, BC's got into putting carbon pricing on at a level which in Europe is considered to be politically unacceptable. Yeah, they're doing it. Yeah. So the way that's working out is pretty interesting. And then, you know, follow on with what other provinces are doing. So you can, you've got some, you've got ways of moving around that techno-economic lobe. For example, one of the things which I think we, I hope we'll see more of is not, you have to be quite clear that no one is advocating extra taxes. Yes. Advocating a shift, revenue neutral shift away from taxing labor. Yeah towards taxing non-renewable resources. I agree with that. And if you get that one right, that will encourage the circular economy idea, which is labour-intensive. There's political risk with that approach, though, because governments are great at introducing taxes, but they're not good at reducing or taking them away, right? So what you wind up with is budget deficits everywhere, which we have. Yeah. So any new money grab is a money grab, and there's never the opposing cancellation of something else, right, to make up for it. I think, yeah, that was what tripped the whole thing up in Australia, particularly. Yeah. It amazed me that they didn't emphasize this point about revenue neutrality. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem, right? You get politicians involved who are short-term thinkers at best, and it yeah. becomes problematic. So the political yeah. dimension is a factor here, unfortunately. It's a, yeah. That's a huge factor. But that's not a reason to give up on it. Cause it's, no, it's not. It's pretty important. Okay, and then the other, if you get back to the, the Venn diagram, the other yeah. lobe is the societal one. And that's, the, that's where the ethical principles really come in. Because that's saying that we have an ethical 
imperative really to provide a good quality of life for everybody now and in the future it goes back to the Brundtland definition so that's where futurity comes in well you know you you mentioned grandchildren already I've got a grandson yeah and I need to be able to look him in the face and say look I tried yeah mm. you know I may have left you a mess but I did try yeah so I think you can't duck that ethical dimension of it. We have responsibilities. Now, ethics is basically about your responsibilities to other people. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. So I hate seeing politicians argue about climate change. It's like seeing two mm. bull guys argue over a hairbrush. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's a misdirection, in my opinion. Because you can just go down one layer in that system and agree on just about everything, like pollution, plastic in the oceans, right? So, you know, I actually, when I thought that through, I believe the public have the power here to affect the politicians. So, for example, if we just stopped buying plastic mm. bottled water, mm. yeah, what would happen? A lot would happen because it's scalable and the business would immediately respond yeah. and so would yeah. politicians by default, right? So, you know, somehow... The, if a mass movement that doesn't look like the mm. Green Taliban trying to invade everyone, you know, just people choosing not to do something but to do something else, that yeah. is where you could get immediate mass change. How you get that message out? I don't know. It's like the marketing in Sweden to get people to buy ethical goods. I know there's some, maybe there's some positive yeah. signs. See, I think, I, I mean, I agree with you entirely with all that. Yeah. But, you, but it has to be done at a more local level. Yeah. That's um, what's wrong with things like the Paris Agreement. Right, I was going to come on to that. Yeah, so what do you think of that? You know, it was, it was important that we that there was an agreement. Yeah. But what's actually in the agreement doesn't matter a whole lot. <laughs> well said. Particularly because it's yeah. voluntary. So the fact of Trump pulling out, maybe that won't matter too much. Politically, it matters. He's made a huge mistake. It enables China to occupy yes. the high ground. But that was just silly. But I'm in Vancouver right now. And, for example, the city of Vancouver has got a public campaign on telling people not to buy bottled water drink tap water that's awesome yeah it is isn't it yeah why have we not got that in ontario and it seems to be getting a lot yeah. of traction that you know now that's so there were, that sort of thing which is needed yeah there was a statement that came out today from architecture 2030 that with or without trump the u.s is already on track to meet or exceed the agreements that were made with the paris agreement years ago and you, and you see that in local municipal governments and local and even the federal governments at state level have, you know, have said with or without them, we're, get, we're making commitments to these reductions. Yeah. yeah. So I think, and that, I think, again, that goes back to this grassroots is more powerful than the top down. Yeah. And so you may not agree with Trump and what he's done. Ultimately, I think what you're right, Roland, it doesn't matter. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Legacy. Yeah. But then, you know, that's why, you know, again, I'm agreeing with you forcibly. I mean, when I, you know, look back at the stuff I've been involved with over the last 20 or 30 years, the most effective stuff has been done with companies and local organizations, not national governments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a bit of a libertarian, I suppose. I'm a libertarian who believes in social medicine, so I'm an oxymoron. Mm. But, you know, mm. when you look at it, right, Absolutely. you see people no. say, oh, evil companies, and yes. some of them are. But, you know, if you go back 20, 30 years and look at the companies around no. then, yeah. Kodak yeah. is a good example. They're not around yeah. now, right? So there is Darwinism in that. You tell me how many government departments have been shut in the last 20 or 30 years. No, right? So this is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think industry and the private sector can come up with solutions. It's the politics they, and the messaging that gets wrapped around it. Sometimes it gets a bit backwards, right? So, you know, if you could get what they're doing in BC, like, you know, just a straightforward effort, you don't need to buy a bottle of water. Drink the tap water, right? What's wrong with that? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Yes. No. What? But the best you can do with governments, I think, is make sure they don't do anything completely perverse. Yeah. You know, because the action and the change is not going to come at um, national or even provincial government no. level. It's going to. It's going to be going to be lower, small power. scale and commercial companies. Roland, you realize it's hard enough for me to sleep at night. Now I got to go to bed thinking I have to prevent them from doing perverse things. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm up to that challenge. <laughs> You get to our age, it's easier. One of the nice things about being retired is that you don't need to give a toss. (laughs) So my wife's threatening to buy me. There's a book apparently being published called something like The the Liberating Power of Not Giving a Shit. That would be a a great tagline, you know, zero Fs given, (laughs) FYI. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's good we can laugh at this, but these are big issues, right? And I actually... Huge issues. You know, it comes back to this one. You've got to be able to look your children and grandchildren in the face. Yeah, Yeah, it does. Uh, You know, that's, to me, that's what's behind the ethical thinking it's you know i've had discussions with various people that who think that ethics is a branch of religious studies it isn't it isn't at all it isn't it's a branch of philosophy yeah and it has to do with being able to look your children in the face yeah so the the question that sort of comes to my mind is when does it become ethically unacceptable to build an average crappy building that's going to emit or it's going to perform poorly for 25 50 years right we must be getting close to that point. Yeah, we are. We are. And it, it, that imposes really some quite difficult personal ethical questions, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, because if it's really bad, if it's really bad, do you say, I'm not having anything to do with this? Or do you stay in there and try to make it less bad? Yeah. You know, that's the engineering professional judgment. It is, actually, yeah. And I don't think there aren't any universal answers to that one. It's the only you've got to ask, can I look myself straight in the face in the mirror and say, I actually did my best with that one. And it would have been worse if I hadn't been around. So when I look back on yeah, that's uh, a good thing. when I was at Cobalt Engineering, we had, it was a design, m design firm. So I had a guy there and he just did not want to work on condos. And when I asked him why, he says, I want to work. We were doing, we had a Lee Platinum mm. job in the office. He said, I want to work on that. That matters. So he was already exercising, this was yes. 10 years ago, his 
he was probably doing it because for career as well, you know, I don't want to be stuck in a condo sector. I want to work in the sexy sector, and I get that. But there was yeah. also an element of that was ethical, right? I don't want to be part of that rubbish anymore. I want to be yeah. part of this new thing that's trying to do yeah. something. And, okay. and I think that's a valid decision. Yeah. What goes with that is you've actually got to be clear and articulate and say why you want that. It's the why. Okay. The why matters, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. One of the things I've – oh, one of the things that engaged me over the years is what is actually the social role of an engineer? <laughs> you know, and I, the, the one I've come down to is a definition of a technical expert – as what I call an honest broker. Right. Okay. And your job, and this fits with the post-normal science idea, your job is not to make decisions for people. Your job is to make sure that the decisions are made in full cognizance of their implications. So your job as a technical expert is to say, these are the considerations, these things should guide your decision, but then you have, a, you have a role in the decision as a, as a member of the general public, but not as an expert. Your expert role is to make sure that all the relevant information is made available and is considered in making the decision. Yes. And that puts a, yeah. I, think, I think that's a more manageable goal for engineers. To. This is where the engineering institutions need to sort of rethink things because they always talk about public health and safety, which is a duty of care for yeah. all engineers. But you're right. Yes. It's a bigger it's a bigger topic than that, yeah. right? Yes. And looking at the sort of whole picture, whole system approach, that's an important part of what the engineers have to do. Yeah. Because, you know, you can't expect politicians, members of the general public, to understand that, for example, if you buy a particular piece of timber for your building and it hasn't got FSC certification, you're contributing to deforestation. Yeah. As a very obvious example, you know, you can find plenty of others. Yeah. So that requires us to take a real look at engineering education because, you know, Adam, on, our, on the show, we've talked several times now about exergy efficiency as opposed to energy yep. efficiency. So, yep. Yep. you know, we teach engineers that energy efficiency is, is good. So they come out of mechanical engineering school. They go work for a manufacturer. They produce a combustion device that might hit 97, 98% combustion efficiency, but an exergy efficiency, it might be 6%. Yes. Yeah. And they're not, not aware even. <laughs> and, and and they're not even aware of it. There's a total ignorance about that. So yeah. bringing that back to sustainability and the discussion of philosophy and ethics, you know, you gray-haired guys, I'm working on it. We have – I think we have an obligation then to bring this awareness to the colleges because if we don't, then we're just – we're sustaining ignorance yeah. is what we're doing yeah. within, within yeah. the engineering community. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, you mentioned earlier on, right back at the beginning, industrial ecology. Yes. And the reason I think that's important, industrial ecology is a grouping of what have traditionally been separate disciplines. It's engineering, systems thinking, thermodynamics. It's also a bit of ecological awareness, a bit of social science, and that means understanding questions like, how do people form their views? <laughs> you know, it's not surveys, it's understanding what causes views to be formed. Yeah. And, of course, some economics. Because I think increasingly, 
we have to be able to challenge conventional economics on its home ground. Agreed. Economics is dangerous because they put numbers in and it gives the perception of exactly. of reality when it's about as far from reality no, as yeah. you can get. Yes, right. And, uh, and um, you, you know, I think all engineers should be made aware of, uh, it's a technical detail in economics, but it's pretty significant. And in my experience, economists don't like you to know about it. And it's the Caldor-Hicks compensation test without compensation. <laughs> and if you find it in an economics book, it's roughly this. If you're trying to work out whether a policy change or a business change is to be made, and there are two groups of people, one of whom suffer and one of whom benefit, as long as the people who benefit have a bigger benefit than the loss of the people who suffer, then according to the Caldor-Hicks test without compensation, you should do that. In other words, provided the people who benefit, benefit more than the people who are screwed get screwed. That's to be... Yeah, sucks if you're being screwed yeah. though, right? And that follows from utilitarian <laughs> ethics, of course. Yes. But it, yeah. I think it's pretty untenable, actually. Yeah. That's yeah, where I started one. to move sideways into Kantian ethics. Yeah. That's almost a good analogy for what's going on in the world today, the disparity mm -hmm. in wealth and the haves Absolutely. and have-nots, right? <clears throat> yeah, that's it. Yeah. We're almost yeah, at exactly a tipping it. point. We're at a tipping point, nearly. Yeah. So just to take it back a little bit, we were talking about, <laughs> I was talking about energy modelling, right? As a, So yeah. do you know what the dismal science of economics, do you know what the dismal science is in buildings? Energy modelling. Mm -hmm. People think <laughs> that thing is just like the truth, right? And yep. I'm seriously thinking about getting an uh, energy model I know on a podcast because, you know, basically I say to people, it's about 50 60% science, about 40% art. Yes. And it's all down to the guy or gal who's interpreting and trying to wrangle that model yes. to work, right, yes. and tick a box. And people get these modeling results and go, oh, that's it. It's good. It's going to be that way. Yeah. This is why there's lawsuits in the U.S. <laughs> about lead performance of buildings, that right? Is there? Okay. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's because we've known for a long time that, well, buildings as designed, buildings as built, and buildings as occupied are three different things. <laughs> three different planets, pretty much. But, and you know that the energy performance of a building has at least as much to do with the way it's used. Yes. As it yeah, has absolutely. the way it's designed. Yeah. So why don't we pay more attention to building operation? Yeah. And that means taking a much long, it's where the discounting bit comes in again. Yes. You know, take a long term view. Yeah. You know, and uh, being criticized for using too low a discount rate means you've probably got it right, actually. Low discount rate, right. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing more intimidating or powerful to convince people than a big MP net present value spreadsheet, right? You put the yeah. spreadsheet up and there's gazillion cells and everyone goes, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes down to like the, the, the discount rate probably being the key variable in all of it, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. You say, well, what, you know, and it'll be in a corner somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is some guy's judgment ultimately. <laughs> so the challenge in that, the challenge in that is that when you start to talk about how buildings are operated, now you're starting to talk about human behavior, and human mm. behavior is not in building codes. So there's a complete disconnect about what what we use to build buildings yep. and yep. how they're actually operated. And so as long as we use building codes to design and construct buildings, we'll never solve the problem. No. We that's have right. to introduce the human factor into it. Agreed. Yeah. And, and that's true. Even, well, as I said, I'm, I spend quite a lot of time in Sweden, and that's even true there. Now, Sweden is interesting because if you want to make a comparison, I describe Canada to my Swedish friends as Sweden without the dogma. 
<laughs> the Swede, Swedish society is extraordinarily dogmatic. Right. And there are terrific pressures on people in Sweden to behave in a consistent kind of way. And even with those Swedish social pressures, they still have some difficulty in getting people to behave in a responsible way in buildings. Now, I'll give you a specific example. I've got a small apartment in Gothenburg, which is where I stay when I'm in Sweden. In the winter, I have to turn the radiators off because otherwise I get so much heat from the apartments either side because they've set their thermostats to 25. Yeah. And I get so much heat through the internal walls that I can't keep my apartment down below 20, which is where I like it to be, <laughs> except by turning off the central heating. That's crazy. You know, and yeah. that's, the, you know, that, that, there's an example yeah. even with social pressure. Between. They can't get people to turn their thermostats down. Yeah. So it's a great story to this. I mean, there's a guy that I communicate with on Twitter and he's from Bangkok mm. and he keeps his air conditioning off. Because both sides on either side of him have their cooling set so low that it cools it. the walls. Right? Yeah, so it's it's the same but reversed, right? Same thing, yeah. 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 So the smart people figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good example of radiant heating and cooling, right? Absolutely. <laughs> if ever you wanted one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, listen, guys, we're coming up on 45 minutes. I'd just like to get into some final thoughts for everyone. So, uh, Roland, if you could say... I know I'm putting you on the spot here. It's a big thing. But, you know, mm. if you could change three three things to make a difference, what would they be? Oh, gosh. I would have, looking ahead, you know, that's something I said earlier on. The, the reason I can sleep at night yeah. is that I have some wonderful people I've had as students who are out there making a difference. Right. And that's my hope for the future. So my first big thing will be education yeah. and i put industrial ecology into engineering programs that's interesting because it covers all these things systems thinking ethics environmental concerns exergy analysis actually okay so that will be my number one for the future better education particularly for engineers and industrial ecology is the route to doing that it does the way i explain industrial ecology by the way to my chemical engineering colleagues is to say chemical engineering is about managing the flows of materials and energy inside process plant industrial ecology is about doing that in the economy that's interesting i like that analogy it's chemical engineering inside the pipe yeah so that's my number one my number two would have to be Changing the stranglehold that economics has on public policy, and particularly the short-termism that comes from the emphasis on discount rates. Yes. Give you an example. Uh, work I've done with various companies in the electronics sector is apparently not economic to recover scarce metals from old mobile telephones. What, even the rare earth metals? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's that insane. So, and this is due to discount rate. So, one of my thoughts wow. is what would happen if sovereign wealth funds, Norway, for example, said, This is crazy. We're going to put some of our money into buying old mobile phones and just keeping them in a warehouse until the economic switch is and the price of the scarce metals goes up, which it will do. I like where you're going there because that's like an arbitrage move, right? <laughs> 
yeah. He's saying, you know, discounting is crazy. Yeah. How can we do uh, well by ignoring it actually yeah. and say so at some point in the future i don't know when it will be common sense will break through even into the economic sphere <laughs> and scarce metals will become more valuable again so you're basically saying there could be an unintended outbreak of common sense in a corporation at some point in the future <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and then i guess my third thing would be <laughs> to hope that the financial markets the investment sector would take a longer term view yeah you know it is just you know the short termism of the investment sector is something that seriously worries me yeah i agree with that 100 percent. you know so that just leads me on to one other question actually because i'm i'm an investor myself i've managed my own pension fund and i'm very keen on the infrastructure funds yeah. that are pursuing the p3 just because i'm a big fan of reliable streams of income as i get older yeah. it's one of the yeah. things that happens to you when you get older right yeah. so do you see like the advent of p3 and the infrastructure funds around them as a good thing do you see that as a positive yes i do yeah so i followed the same approach as you right. i had some involvement with the investment i was a director of a, an investment fund for a while right and not long after getting into this i realized that the, these people actually don't understand systems right and they don't understand the system they're investing in so i actually sold all my equities and bought property and works of art hard assets that's uh, one of the things i'm yeah, pursuing you know, actually the stuff is considerably nicer thing to have than a share certificate yeah and we've got various properties like you as investments yeah. generate a rental income yeah yeah so just for our listeners here if you want to understand where we're going with this Look into what happened in Cyprus a few years ago. That will tell you everything you need to know about yeah, your investing future, and I'll say no more okay. than that because yeah. this isn't that yeah. type of podcast. <laughs> but I know it. <laughs> yeah, okay, awesome. That's that's great. Well, I think we've covered everything I wanted to cover. I mean, I was really interested in the ethics discussion, and that did not disappoint, okay. I have well, to tell I you. I got some good, yeah. uh, some yeah, good thoughts coming discussion. off that. I can, <laughs> I can feel some blog posts percolating in my head already, actually. <laughs> So, uh, Robert, anything, any final question? Yeah, when can we get Roland back on again? Yeah, I think we might have to have a part two on this next year, Roland, when you get back from your winter hibernation. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it's nice to talk to you guys. It's, you know, I hope people find it, well, I hope people find things in it which are both entertaining and provoking. Oh, they will. The mission is to provoke thought and try and generate change, and I think we've touched on that pretty much all the way through this. Yeah, for the, and for, of course, the listening audience, we're just recording the audio portion, but, of course, we're all on Skype, and so there's a visual communication going on between the three of us. And I can tell you that l looking into Roland's eyes, when he says, I want to be able to sit and look at my grandkids and tell them I did the best that I could do, that's that was touching, I you know, because there was sincerity in that, but there's a huge message in that and yeah. thinking about the tomorrow's generation. So that was powerful. I thought that was a great, great interview. I'm really glad that we got to talk to him. You know, we you don't get to talk to these people often, right? Because they're all over the world. And, you know, he's in Sweden, he's in the UK, and he's now moving to Canada. But as he travels around the world, he's taken with him a, a knowledge that is just phenomenal. I mean, he's got such wisdom about 
ecological systems and economic systems and you know there's so much an engineer can learn from him yeah this is where you realize the tunnel vision that is engineering education right yeah because you know just the industrial ecology and it, that great definition he gave of it being you know the convergence of different disciplines adjacent disciplines trying to understand each other and what's going on around them right that just doesn't happen in my world of engineering <laughs> yeah mine neither and it's and the other thing that he made when you asked him about the three things that he can change and all three of them were really quite good yeah but i really i mean i was moved by the, the part one but number two change in the economic stranglehold and the short-term views that economics has we that we really need to do that i, I don't know how you i don't know how we can emphasize that enough how economics is screwing us and i say us the world yeah. by economic policies the short-term view now he was right to focus on the discount rate or the internal rate of return as it's sometimes called because that number i don't care what anyone says that is a guess yeah, it is absolutely. It's a guess. <laughs> now, yeah. People will give you this long dissertation about why it should be six or seven percent, but you know what? It's a guess, and it's normally given. I think when you work for government, they will say, "Right, well, you got to work around this eternal uh, rate of return to meet our standard." Blah blah blah. So you know, yeah, you're, you're hobbled from the start sometimes. But the ethics was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, you know, sure was. I love that. You know, as an engineer. The reference to Nuremberg trial was brilliant. You know, it is a legal precedent that is not sufficient to say for anything, including killing someone. I was following orders. You will be held accountable at some point. Yeah. So I'm not saying engineers are killing people, but there is a choice, right? You can choose not to work on shitty things. You can leave that firm. You can go into an adjacent field, right? You don't have to produce crappy condos, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's probably, and I don't know now where they teaching ethics and engineering, but I got to think that it should be one of the very first year, second year courses. Yeah. In fact, you know what, it should, maybe it should be a course every year, you know, just to keep reminding them, because ultimately what happens to people, and, it's like, and it becomes an economic thing that, you know, engineers take on positions, they're they're like everybody else. They're trying to feed their family. They're putting their kids through school. They need to deal with transportation, all of these types of things. And so you you can get faced with decisions that affect your personal economics. And having to say no means that you could lose your job. And are you prepared as an engineer to walk away from those bad things? Because if you're not prepared to walk away, you maybe want to be thinking about a different profession. Yeah. And so maybe that's why I'm saying that they need to teach ethics at the beginning of a, of a curriculum. They do, yeah. You know. Yeah, because it's it's easy for you and I. We're mature, we're older, we're established. When you're in the middle of your working life, it's hard because you know we've got children's and mortgage, right? So as you say, if you yeah. get it, if you get this thinking done while you're learning in the junior part of your career, where you've got the option to make a choice easier, yeah, that's the time to do it, right? Yeah. I, you know, I'll never forget the time that we had were bidding on a project. Uh, it was a large district energy project, and the engineer of record on the project had said to us that in the event that we were successful in our submission, that a certain amount of the money needed to be transferred to his house personally. <laughs> oh, now, this this occurred to us during a downturn yeah. in the economy. And I remember having the discussion with uh, my advisors. A, I was totally uh, taken a, about having been asked that. I just couldn't believe, and this was a professional engineer, that a professional engineer would ask such a question. And, of course, then the second thing that occurs to you when you're doing that is that oh, this person needs to be reported, mm. right? Because that's, a, you know, that's one of the obligations that we have. And then, the th- and then the third thing had to do with 
my sort of the long-term view is that in the event that you know someone's faced with that that decision, you if you accept that term, then you will always be labeled as somebody who can be bought. Yeah, you can never erase that from your character trait. Nope, you can try, but you can't. Uh, you've got to look at yourself every morning in the mirror when you shave, right? Uh, and you know that will haunt you, even if you think yeah. it won't. As a young person, when you get older, I can guarantee you it will. Right? These things don't go away. That guy was brazen, right? Yeah. I guess he was just so brazen he caught you off. No. <laughs> he caught you off guard, did he? <laughs> yeah, totally. I never. Who would ever yeah. expect that a professional would require that from? And uh, so I and I will never forget that for as long as I live. That and of course the decision is very clear for somebody who is ethical. No. Yeah. And we we uh, pulled our bid. Yeah, yeah. You can't get in them games because that's a zero sum game. Ultimately, you wind up down a barrel of badness. Yeah, but that was what Roland was saying, is that, you know, is that when you're faced with decisions, you have to say no. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it's something that's going to affect one person or a number of people or the, the biosphere or your own character. Yeah, I, I, again, the, the way to wrap this up is someone, CEO I used to work with at a firm, he was really good. He was a great communicator. He's the sort of guy that could uh, fire someone and they'd leave, leave his office going, thanks, that was awesome. You know, he was that he was that level of Jedi <laughs> knight, right? But he's one of his great sayings is yeah, to yeah. be a leader, you've got to be comfortable with the word no. Yeah. You've got to be able to say it and live with it, Yeah, right? And that's where a lot of junior managers fail. They are yes people, right? They want to yes and please people. And there comes a point when you become a senior manager and leader where you have to learn to deal with the word no and deliver it and receive it. Yeah. And if you're a Jedi Knight, you can fire people and they will thank you. <laughs> and I have personally seen that happen. This guy was at another level, so I won't name yeah. him. I won't blow too much smoke up his bottom, but he yeah. was pretty yeah. awesome. Wonderful. So, okay, that, that was a great interview. I'm looking forward to the next one, so I'll uh, see you on the next one. Thanks, Adam. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.